Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. I hope you're having a great summer. In fact, our podcast is also going to take a couple of weeks off. But before that, I bring you an excellent episode today. We are very privileged to have on the podcast Vesna Pusish. She's a social scientist, academic, political analyst, and former Minister of Foreign and European Affairs in Croatia. And Emil Kiriash is the founder of Kiriash Global, Vice President of Liberal International, former State Secretary of Foreign Affairs of Macedonia. This is a true all-star panel of people that have been doing a fantastic work regarding the construction of a European Union project. This episode's conversation will be an extension of the last one, where we're going to continue to talk about EU enlargement to the Western Balkans, but also we get into what is needed to have a strong EU in the new world order and to put our own owls in order. And stick around for after our conversation, where you can know more about one of the ELF publications that has been on the basis of this conversation. This is policy paper number 20, Stage Integration for Future EU Enlargement. But now, with no further ado, I bring you Vesna Pusish and Emil Kiriash. I'm joined by Vesna Pusish and Emil Kiriash. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks. You're welcome. Oh, it's a privilege to have both of you here. Please introduce yourself to our audience. So what was the path that you took to get to this point that we're now talking on the podcast? And Vesna, I'll start with you. I'm Vesna Posic. I've done many different things in my life. In the first part of my life, I was an academic. Then I spent more than 20 years in active politics, and I was Croatia's foreign and European minister when Croatia joined the European Union. And currently I'm an analyst, a think tanker, and occasionally a lobbyist for causes that I believe in. And one of the causes that I genuinely believe in is the European Union and Western Balkans in the European Union. So I'm very keen on this conversation today. Wow, thank you again for joining me. And Emil, take it away. started being politically active since I was very young, as I had the privilege or curse to have been born um, at a ta- in, in a country that fell apart, Yugoslavia. And in my adolescent years, we were setting up uh, from all possible aspects the institutions of an independent Macedonian state. I was one of those who participated in those processes, especially on the youth level. I was participating in setting up the liberal youth of the country, which led me then to be active in the international liberal family, where I was president of the International Federation of Liberal Youth, then secretary general of Liberal International. And in between, I was also active on national level in the politics, where I was state secretary for foreign affairs uh, at the time when Macedonia got the candidate status for the EU membership a long 18 years ago. So, yes, all these processes of European integration, uh, European Union enlargement, Europe's influence in the world and liberal philosophy that should be enshrined in our lifestyle is something that I have very close at my heart. So we have an all-star panel here with people that know the practice and also the uh, theoretical aspects of this. And we just came out of the last European Council meeting 
in there, again, it was reinforced the commitment of the European Union to help Ukraine and Moldova. Also, it was uh, stated that Moldova is doing uh, substantial work to meet the required conditions for the accession progress. Also, work has been done with Georgia, where, again, in the meeting, it was uh, stated that Georgia is actually advancing in the conditions required to join this path. And equally and important here, so that I throw to both of you, and I'm going to quote now, the European Council reiterates its full and unequivocal commitment to the EU membership perspective of the Western Balkans and its support for the acceleration of the merit-based accession process and the related reforms. So with this intro, and Vesna, she already, you already is expressed your great interest in this particular point, but I'm going to start with Emil, because you mentioned in the work you do and the work you've been doing with the European Liberal Forum that the EU actually has regressed in the work that it's been doing with the Western Balkan countries. So tell us why. Tell us how, why you feel that way. Well, you know, I mean, when you promise something and then not one, two, five, ten, twenty years have passed and the promise is still there, but there is no much delivery, then you have to wonder whether your promises are either good or whether the work that you're doing is, is right. Um, we have uh, basically been witnessing now a uh, EU Council conclusion that is reiterating what it concluded already in June 2003, 20 long years ago. Mm -hmm. In the perspective, the leader of my party back home in Macedonia, uh, she's 31, 32. Uh, that declaration and that promise was made when she was 10, 11. She does not know anything except the idea of joining of the European Union. Uh, in her entire life, everything that she knows mm -hmm. of the EU accession path. And still we are not there. Still we are talking about years to go ahead. So we have to basically think how and what we should do to uh, accelerate this process because people obviously are getting impatient and the competitors are stepping in. Vesna, uh, throwing it back to you now, June of 2003, it's a long time away. Uh, Croatia, it was a history of success in getting into the European Union. So do you have a follow-up here following what Emil just mentioned, his frustration that the process is taking so long and is being so cumbersome? I can completely understand this. When we entered... Um European Union, which was almost exactly 10 years ago, in 2013, we had been in the process for 12 years. That didn't mean negotiating for 12 years. That meant from the moment we uh, ratified the Stabilization and Association Agreement, which is sort of a first step for the countries of the Western Balkans or Southeastern Europe, uh, to full membership. We thought that it was an extremely long time. This looks like nothing now in comparison. And in that sense, uh, the conclusions or the sentence from the conclusions uh, of uh, the last uh, Euro European Council um, sound, how can I say, a little frustrating, <laughs> to put it very mildly, because we've heard them tens of times, tens of times. Uh, full support for European perspective and membership of the countries of the Western Balkans. 
In the meantime, in the 10 years Croatia entered, um, nobody moved. Actually, nobody of the six countries of the Western Balkans moved forward. A number of countries moved backwards. And I would say that some of them are now further from uh, membership in terms of their internal situation than they were, let's say, 10 or 12 years ago when, or 11 years ago, for instance, Montenegro, when they started negotiations. Today, Montenegro is a different country and probably further away uh, from, from membership than it was then. So, as we know, time doesn't stop for anybody. And this is why taking action is so important, I would say, for the Western Balkans, but of course also for the European Union. And I'm going to ask you to please expand on that. But before, I'm going to go back to Emil, because I know that you've been working with the European Liberal Forum. There is a paper that is called Stage Integration, where I know that you had an important part of it. And like Vesna just said, that delta between the political will and then the in the transformation in the in the, in the arena of making things happen this creates a void that be, can be taken by other countries like china it's a good example in the western balkans so in your opinion what is missing what is this difference between all this rhetoric and then making things really move forward well what we obviously need in europe and there everybody would, would, would agree with it. We are lacking leadership. Leadership means that you have to basically take the, the bull by the horn, deal with the issue and confront the citizens and tell them that you are doing the right thing knowing that the result will be good. For example, uh, we need to set a graduation date. We have to set a date until when these reforms have to be completed, until when these countries will join the European Union, let's say, be 2029, the elections for the European Parliament that year, or 2030, or whatever. We need to basically come up with a clear plan by what date we are actually talking about the enlargement and we are talking about accession, first thing. Second thing, we have to stop treating the countries that are in the process as adolescents that are never going to become mature sufficiently. We have to track them positively that they are going to be able to stand on their own field and help them in that, in that, in that process. That requires political help, that requires determination, and that requires support and also it requires a resolute attitude from the european union if it says that one of the criteria is following the foreign and security policy deliver on it that means that serbia cannot actually cooperate with russia economically and have benefit out of it while the rest of the continent and the rest of the candidates suffer it means that if dodik the leader of republika srpska is on a blacklist he cannot move around the rest of the uh, candidate countries as a free citizen but they should follow the blacklisting and not allow him to travel anywhere so that he's trapped in banja luka in his own cottage this is what will actually give the citizens an opportunity to understand that this process is credible is real and it's reachable it's at the end that they can see the end uh, the light at the end of the tunnel Vesna, I'll throw it to you. Would you like to have a follow-up on this one? Yes, thank you. Um, this, as, as you know, is, is a very important issue from many uh, different aspects and angles. Uh, and I would start, start by saying uh, that, you know, time has changed 
circumstances, uh, both of the Western Balkans uh, and of the European Union. And something that would be important is for European Union to stop playing God and start doing politics in the Western Balkans. The time of everybody being Europe's friends is over. Not all the politicians are Europe's friends. Not all the politicians in the Western Balkans want their countries to join the European Union. I think by now that should be clear. And European Union cannot rely on having everybody in these countries on their side. However, these countries and these territories surrounded by uh, territory of European Union from all sides is crucial for European stability and security. At the moment, it is very much used by, for instance, Russia, specifically to destabilize European Union. And therefore, European Union should have a proactive geopolitical approach to the Western Balkans. It's also six different countries that need tailor-made approach. They're not one country as they're sometimes being treated by the institutions of the European Union and, by the way, also sometimes by our uh, American uh, partners. There are many different, or at least, let's say, four different models on the, uh, on the table of how uh, these countries could be approached to speed up this, this whole process. But I would say that setting a deadline is certainly something that, that uh, should be the first, the first step. Um, it should also be understood that some players, like the aforementioned Dodik of one part of Bosnia-Herzegovina, is a Russian player. He is a Putin's player. He is not going to come to the European side because he is afraid he will end up in jail if Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, joins uh, European Union. So this is something that I think um, we as the European Union and, and European institutions needs to understand and go for the political victory in the Western Balkans rather than for... Well, everybody coming into their arms because that is not happening anymore. I'm going to stay here for a couple more minutes because I think this is important. Vesna, you just mentioned a couple of times already that the countries are not the same ones while the process started. Emil, you did mention that there is a sense of disappointment in the societies. So we, we already mentioned what the European Union should do. Now, locally... Do you feel that there's still that drive, there's still that uh, hope that people, even with all these delays and, and all this, uh, you know, rhetoric, people still want it? Or do you think that even locally things also need to be shaken up? And Vesna, this time I'll start with you. I would say, and it's not just my opinion, uh, it's based on a public, uh, public opinion poll that was done already some time ago, but I would sort of think that, that it still holds some time ago, meaning, let's say, a year and a half ago, that showed that in all the countries of the Western Balkans, the majority of the population was still in favor of their country 
joining the European Union, except for Serbia. In Serbia, it was only 30%. And the reason for that is that they have been bombarded by either Putin-controlled or Vucic-controlled media that are constantly playing this game of, you know, we will get money from the West, but also some support and friendship from uh, Putin and, and Russia and maintain sort of this, this kind of uh, position of sitting on two chairs, which is desirable for at least part of uh, the political elite. But it certainly is not desirable for the Serbian society. Now, based on that, I would say this doesn't change any, anything as far as the need for all the countries of the Western Balkans joining European Union, including Serbia. However, it changes and would need to change uh, our approach to the countries of the Western Balkans, because originally the attitude was let's get Serbia into the European Union and everybody else will follow because Serbia is the biggest, Serbia is potentially the biggest disruptor. So once you get there, you will get everybody else. I think that approach is not working and will not work precisely of, because of this reason that I mentioned. So I think that what is needed is to surround mm -hmm. Serbia with success because their political elite and their President Vucic in particular, are competitive with the neighbors. And if they see that all the neighbors are making progress towards membership and are succeeding, this is something that could potentially motivate them to get off their high horse and actually decide uh, where, do, where they belong and, and lead in that direction. Uh, allow me to editorialize a little bit my function here as a moderator. I also I am aware of the reality on the ground with Serbia. And it's not a question of just the politicians. I think the civil society also. It, there's a lot of work to be done to get to that point. We shouldn't judge the Serbian society by what comes out of, their, of the mouth of their political leaders. Mm -hmm. We should also listen maybe to some of these people who've had enough and who have been on the streets of the cities and towns of Serbia mm -hmm. every week now, saying, you know, we want a decent country to live in. We want uh, good polity. We want accountable government. And they're there too. Okay, we don't see yet a leader there or somebody who you would vote for or could vote for, but they're there. And there are people, there are liberals working in Serbia. I know, I know a couple of them. Uh, Emil, uh, let me bring you to the conversation. Then you uh, in North Macedonia, tell me how you feel about this. I'm still enthusiastic, but I'm angry. I'm angry, you know. When a love affair is dragged along, you start wondering whether something is wrong with you or you're being permanently cheated and this love affair is actually going to fall apart. Everybody can understand that emotion. We have gone through that in our life in different phases and we understand what it means. Um, that is why the opinion polls in Macedonia have seen dramatic decline from 90-something percent of support of EU membership to uh, even 
just above 50, some, uh, some are indicated under 50%. But that is one indicator where people feel this uh, despair of, of being basically treated poorly. Uh, on the other hand, if you see another in, uh, public poll, which tell you that majority of the young people, nearly 80% want to move out of the country and where they want to move, they want to move mainly to Western Europe. It basically tells you everything. And that's exactly the opinion poll that I would like you to and everybody else to focus on across the Western Balkans, including Serbia, where the young people or the people generally want to move to Western Europe. Why? Because they understand and then identified that model of governance, that system as something that is good for them, good for their, for their life, good for their family, good for their future. Look, you can make good money in Russia these days too, despite the war. Yet the Serbians are not having ambitions to move to Russia or to Kazakhstan or to Turkey. They want to move to Western Europe. End of discussion. That shows that these people are actually craving to live in a country, in a society, which is going to be liberal democracy. And they do not have it at home. This is what we should focus on. This is what the real public opinion is, is actually leading us. Now, uh, whether the Western leaders are understanding that, that's a different thing. I did have an issue, huge issue as Macedonian, of course, when Macron went to Belgrade and instead of telling Vucic in the face what's wrong with the with the democracy in the country, he basically went over there because he was signing good uh, bilateral economic deals for building the metro, whatever. The same type of trip he made to China, basically missing out the opportunity to call the SPED a SPED. And if we think that the people in the Western Balkans are brainless or stupid, we are mm -hmm. terribly wrong. They do follow what is happening. They do understand very well, and they can distinguish hypocrisy between reality and, and reality very well. Very fair criticism from you, Emil. Zooming out a little bit, one of the topics that I wanted to also to have your contribution, it's when thinking about the European Union and the revival of a multilateralism and the leadership in, the new, uh, in a new world order. And, and, and here we have two sides, and I ask both of you to talk about each one of those sides. Vesna, for you, you say that this is crucial. Extend to Africa, talk with Latin America, talk with the Pacific area. So this is important, and you're going to tell us why. And then I'm going to ask Emil to talk about a crisis of legitimacy that we do have in the European Union, when we turn outside and then we could be criticized by, hey, look at you, you, you are not a good example. So let's start with the positive. <laughs> and for that, I'll, I'll bring Vesna. Uh, European Union is one of the very few, you can say, multilateral, major multilateral organizations left standing. Uh, since the latest aggression, uh, Russian aggression on Ukraine uh, last year, UN, United Nations have been paralyzed. It, I've lived a long life. I haven't seen them in that situation ever. They're basically because of the makeup of the decision-making process and the Security Council and all of that, United Nations are as if they were not there. Uh, a lot of other organizations of cooperation and security in Europe, a number of other organi multilateral organizations are 
basically completely marginalized. And this is why European, where European Union becomes so important because multilateralism, multilateral organizations and, and uh, politics is the only real friend of small and medium-sized nations. Just for comparison, out of 193 members of uh, the United Nations, 180 are classified as small or medium countries. So huge majority of the countries in the world uh, will have a very difficult time you know, being heard at all. Uh, if we don't revive multilateral politics. And uh, because of uh, the situation in which the other major multilateral organizations have found themselves, European Union and its success and its role become, I would say, additionally important and probably a starting point from which we will have to revitalize multilateralism as such and, and functioning of multilateral global organizations. Now, why did I mention Africa and, and Latin America? The United States and North America, let's say, has made over time in its history, I would say, many mistakes in their relationship with Latin America. And it has a very difficult and uneasy relationship with Latin America now, not only because of the issue of, of uh, border crossings and the way it treats itself, uh, this problem, but also because things like that brutalize your own society. Our European Latin America is Africa. This is continent that's our other half, let's say, that's our partner. Uh, this is also the continent mm. that um, has almost everything that we lack. Mm -hmm. And we have almost everything that they want in terms of economic development, of some standards of good polity. I'm not saying that Europe is ideal, but it definitely has certain elements of quality of life and, and let's say a good society that you can aspire and that uh, new states aspire to, especially societies in these uh, new states. However, the African uh, countries, on the other hand, one thing that, that we keep moaning about in Europe is, for instance, demographics. This is a problem that Africa doesn't have. It's young, it's dynamic, it doesn't have the, the, this kind of problem, but Europe has not found a way in which to work constructively with Africa. And when we hear about Africa, it's basically trying to defend Fortress Europe or trying to de defend our borders from uh, immigrants and, and refugees, not only from Africa, but also from Africa, rather than developing partnership through education, direct investment, coordinated energy politics, uh, reindustrialization in partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, with with Africa. There are so many things, and there are such good lessons that we can learn from American experience. At the moment, while we were looking in other directions, China is all over Latin America, and Russia is all over Africa. Uh, there has been talk when Prigozhin was sent to uh, the the uh, Putschist or Putschist wannabe against Putin in Russia was sent to Belarus, that he will eventually end up in Africa because uh, Wagner or this mercenary group that was financed by the Russian government has is involved in the number of wars or smaller conflicts in Africa. Uh, this is something that is somehow going below the radar for us. And I think that those are the things that should be on our agenda, on Europe's agenda uh, in for the next commission. Because you remember that at the beginning of this commission, uh, president of the commission, Van der Leyen, said this is going to be a geopolitical commission. It ended up not to be. However, I think it also ended up to be the last commission that actually wasn't geopolitical. And all the circumstances are now in place for the next commission to actually start being geopolitical and start thinking of itself as a geopolitical player. I mean, start thinking of Europe as a geopolitical player. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, actually, the European Level Forum, they have a publication on this. It's called European Security Architecture or New European Security Architecture. And actually, there's going to be a podcast coming up soon where I'm going to have also a researcher called Maria Carrai, where we're going to talk about exactly uh, a, a betting, the European Union betting on the future of Africa. Uh, Emil, I'm going to take advantage of your rightful anger. <laughs> which you which you have and very and very rightly so because there is a need also to for the European Union to fix our own house. Uh, we were just talking about Serbia, but we, we can also talk about um, Hungary and Poland, and we can easily be pointed out to say, "Hey, you guys do not uh, do what you preach." So, uh, how do you see that? How do you see us taking that step also? Let me start with the anger. You know, anger is an expression of passion. And as long as there is passion about politics and as long as that is transformed into political discussion and ideas, I think that's good. Um, <laughs> let me actually uh, um, share some info, info with you um, and with the, the listeners of the podcast about uh, how the outsiders basically perceive uh, what is happening in Europe these days, in particular about the war. And in that sense, I mean about Africa, where I work a lot. You know what is the majority of the comments I get over there um, about the war in Ukraine? They say, oh, you white people are fighting again. Why do you want us to actually meddle into your fights again? Why do you want us to suffer? And when you tell them, but hey, no, 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 no. This is about rules. This is about order. It's about something that will uh, that will actually come and hit your head. The immediate answer is, well, when, when you were intervening in Libya uh, and caused all our headaches, did you actually ask us? Did you actually coordinate with us? When 
you decided mm-hmm. to leave Mali and the security mission over there. Did you actually ask us or did you just call and tell us that you're going to leave? And that basically brings very much into question their perception whether we are an honest player or we still have a, a position, a perception of ourselves that they are the, we are the superior ones who know everything and we're going to t- tell the others what to do. Same thing about democracy. When we tell them what they should do, how to run their countries democratically, and we have been pressuring the president of Senegal, for example, to announce that he's not going to run for a new term. Logically, he was asking why, who is actually asking for me from the European Union? The European Union also includes Hungary, includes Czech Republic. Are you asking me as NATO? NATO has also Turkey. What are you giving me as a reference here? You know, so it's, uh, or for example, why are we pressuring, uh, I don't know, Ghana, but then going give 1 billion euros to Tunisia's dictator who suspended the parliament, who suspended democracy, who suspended freedom of, of media, freedom of expression and everything. We just gave him 1 billion euros through the visit of Mark Rutte and Ursula von der Leyen. That means that we need to basically sort ourselves first. If we do not fix our own troubles at home, if we do not basically deal with our own problem makers at home, we are not going to be credible, neither in the process of enlargement, nor in uh, projecting our capacity towards the citizens of the European Union, even less to the outside world. Because then we, I mean, the outside in the outside world, they will say, yes, okay, fine, in order to be able to get the funds from us, but they will not listen to us in a credible way. As long as we do not uh, handle ourselves properly, as long as we do not put our house into order, we are not going to be able a strong geopolitical player on a global level. Name me one uh, of the of the global superpowers at the moment, be the United States, be the wannabe Russia or China, or even India that has internal uh, dysfunctionality as we have it to a degree that we can have examples that basically go against our own rules and that can question everything that we are saying internationally. So it is highly important. I do agree with those in the EU who say reform at home is as much as needed to be in parallel with the the enlargement process, because if we do not do it, we are going to go uh, into the direction of internal implosion. The populists are going to gain more powers. Uh, and more votes, as we have seen it in Italy. We are just going to witness it in your neighboring Spain. France is on the edge of a populist uh, boom. So that those are dangerous tendencies and should be basically a wake-up call for us to get more passionate about delivering on our own values. Very fair warnings for uh, my two guests today that are people that are passionate about this and as you said, Emil, rightfully anger into action. I just have a couple more minutes with both of you, but I would like to ask this question, which is what is then the most important trends for Europeans coming in the near future? Uh, Vesna, I'll start with you. Actually, you already mentioned one, which was very interesting. It is the next European Commission has to be a geopolitical commission. But what, what takes your sleep at night when you think about the future of the EU? Maybe the first first thing is that I genuinely care about is revamping democracy. It probably 
needs to happen in Europe. We somehow have to think of a way to make democratic form of government attractive and motivating to people, especially to young people. People are today being more drawn to different lunatics, pardon my extreme expression, but to, you know, people that say outrageous things from, from you know, flat earth onwards, not to say uh, people who are real self-serving populists like, for instance, Donald Trump and people like that, they manage to inject their supporters with passion, with uh, caring or with somehow heightened emotions about the things that they support. Uh, we Democrats, liberal Democrats, who strongly believe in, in uh, our values, somehow have lost um, the capacity to address people's emotions. Uh, I think European Union has to start from there. Saying democracy is good is good, <laughs> but you have to have other sort of uh, uh, focus or, or uh, additional ideas that will make that somehow close to people's hearts, not only sort of a rational choice approach. And one thing we have lost along the way is, for instance, the sense of community, the sense of empathy, of solidarity. And I know that for many years this has been looked down upon as being too sentimental, gooey, not real politics. But that's what life is about. This is what, you know, what you want in your life, what makes you feel good, what mm -hmm. makes you feel close to other people. So I think this is one thing that we as Europeans have to sort of start revamping, if you want, or, or reinventing uh, democracy as a motivating uh, concept and as a, as a motivating call to action. And of course, uh, the other thing that is going to happen and is already happening with Europe is to readjust uh, to the new reality where the key um, function or concern or focus of the European Union is not any, anymore, as Clinton's advisor James Carver said, it's the economy stupid. Unfortunately, it's not the economy stupid anymore, it's security. And one reason why people in some European countries go to the strongmen and support strongmen, apart from them controlling the public sphere, media and everything else, is also because they, especially since the new developments in, in Europe and aggression on Ukraine, they started feeling that security is key and they're scared. And this is something that I think we have to find answers to. And European Union, meaning us, needs to, to uh, address 
in the next in the mandate and uh, term of office of uh, the next commission. And finally, some of the unquestioned rules and uh, postulates of the uh, sort of democratic capitalism, let's say, which European Union is an example of, was free market, energy cooperation, human rights. These things have been called, all have been called into question. Free trade, free markets, actually what's happening is protectionism. It's self-sufficiency because of the experience of the pandemic and the war. European agricultural policy is being called into question because food is now a strategic resource. Uh, and the entire European agricultural policy is aimed at reducing food production in Europe. Uh, nuclear energy, something that you know, until recently everybody thought, apart from the French, no, no, now everybody's thinking maybe that's the source of, of uh, clean energy. I'm mentioning that because I think that even from the conclusions of the last European Council, you can see that some of the things, they look all all the same like previous ones, but they're actually not. You can see these you know, signs of these changes that we will need to, change, to face and we will need to find answers to and learn or find ways of thinking about these issues. And we are, I think, at the starting point right now. This was a long menu. I don't know if, Emil, are you going to able to uh, just uh, nudge something here that keeps you awake? Or uh, Vesna already has all the insomnia that we can, that we can handle. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm privileged to be on a podcast together with Vesna, who has been an inspiration to me in politics for so many years. Uh, and uh, I do feel, um, you know, a, a, a little bit shy to add something after she has spoken <laughs> so elaborately. But maybe I would just, um, you know, I don't want to uh, now start the entire discussion because you can you can do another podcast about the artificial intelligence. And I think this is something that that really keeps me wondering how and what in what direction is going to go if we do not regulate it well. You know, liberals believe in technology, but they also believe in good regulatory framework. And this is something that is um, that is bugging me really these days. But the other thing that also bugs me and where I would love us, the Europeans, to be much more brave and courageous is actually this thing about strategic autonomy kind of annoys me. Again, I sound, <laughs> I sound emotional, but... Uh, this is just the same like having a dream to be a good student rather than to say I'm going to be the best businessman or the most successful in my sphere. Europe should be the strongest geopolitical power in the world. That should be our aim, not just a strategic autonomy that sounds so mild, wishy-washy, like we want to be the small brother. No, we want to be the, part, the, the global partner in the world that people would look with admiration and with the desire to work with together because of innovation, because of the capacity to lead in democratic way, because of the quality of life that we have, because of social protection and everything. So not strategic autonomy, but global superpower Europe. Mm. 
And there is a precedent for that because what, as you were describing that, I was thinking, and Vesna, I, I know you will agree with this, the United States was that for a long time during the 80s, for example. So the, the blueprint is there. We can follow that blueprint. Um, this has been amazing. I, we could continue, as Emil just said, we could continue this conversation for longer. I'm going to ask you if you would please uh, come back to the podcast so that we can continue this. The AI topic, just that one, as you said, will be a podcast on itself. But now I want our listeners also to get active. And for that, I want them to follow you online. So please tell me, and let's start with you, Emil. How can people follow you on the web um most easily would be on linkedin emil kirias or on uh, social media basically facebook to kirias.global so linkedin and facebook i'll put the uh, links on the podcast show notes uh, what about you vesna for me twitter i uh, am on facebook nominally but never go there and I'm also on LinkedIn, <laughs> but I never go there. But Twitter, I do. So look wow. Twitter. You are one of my kind. <laughs> I, I, I live on Twitter for... Okay, guys, are you my... switching now to Meta? Right. I, I know, <laughs> I know. And we should switch, but, you know. Or sure. there should be a European company that should take a lead. Come on. We, at least we can do that. <laughs> and we there do. you go. That's That's <laughs> the perfect note for us to end the podcast for today. I've been talking with Vesna Pusic and Emil Kiriash. This was a privilege. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Muito obrigado. Thank you. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now, as promised, I'll go a little bit into the policy paper number 20, Stage Integration for Future EU Enlargement. This is from the ELF Secretariat, and it was written by our colleague Maria Lesina. She's a PhD and ELF Policy and Research Officer. European integration has resulted in an unprecedented period of peace and ever-extending liberties for European citizens. When peace, security and freedom on the continent are once again at stake, it's time to return to the fundamentals of the European project and renew our commitment to its initial purpose and vision. Based on the results of the 22 ELF Working Group on Stage Integration, this paper proposes a policy model that can bring a solution to the long-lasting stalemate in EU enlargement. You can know more about this publication and others on liberalforum.eu forward slash publications. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. Yeah.